Welcome into the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. It is Thursday, September the 5th, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the East Coast. And uh, if you're up at 5 a.m., kudos to you watching this show. Superhero in my book. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Not directly related to the game of football, soccer, uh, as we call it here in the U.S., but he is an avid, avid football fan. Unfortunately, a Real Madrid supporter. Rafael Rafael Nadal, my, my favorite tennis player, played last night in the U.S. Open Cup in New York. Um, it is... My favorite, uh, my favorite tennis. Uh, I, I love watching Wimbledon. I love uh, watching the French and Australian Opens. But man, the the, the U.S. Open in New York is just uh, such a cool event. They've now put in these LED video walls uh, at the courts and um, have these big player introductions. It's They're like rock stars, man, coming out on the court. It's really, really cool stuff uh, that uh, the U.S. Tennis Association uh, have, have put together for the U.S. Open Cup in New York. It's created a really, really cool environment for the fans as well as for the players. And, um, and then last night, Rafa uh, played a... a an opponent that he's very familiar with. They trained together in Mallorca in Spain, where, where Rafa is from. And, um, he's a small Argentine. It's like five foot seven. And, um, but they're, they're real familiar with each other. Great match last night. And, um, they just, they went back and forth. It was a straight sets victory for, for Rafa Nadal, but uh, it was not an easy victory. It was it was a hard-fought victory, and uh, it was fascinating to watch. It was, uh, it was great, great theater. Um, and one of the things that, that played out is that Rafa's opponent, Schwartzman, he knew Rafa's game. They've, they've, they've trained together. So he knows how Rafa likes to play from a mentality standpoint, tactical standpoint, how he wants to set up an opponent to, to win a point. He, he knows the spins that he puts on the ball. He knows all of these types of things. And you couple that with the fact that at, at five foot seven, he's got very quick feet. He's a very fast player. He can cover a lot of the court. So shots that most opponents would struggle to get to or to cover, Schwartzman was able to get to, and he's used to seeing that from Rafa Nadal and was was hitting back some great returns and, and incredible uh, winners. And, and it started to, to create some pressure, some anxiety for Rafa. He, he went up four games to nil in the first set, and then Schwartzman comes storming back, wins four games in a row, and then Rafa finishes him off 6-4. Same thing happens in the second set. Rafa goes up 5-1. to one. Schwartzman storms back with four, four games in a row, and then Rafa finishes him off 7-5. to five. And then... Again, in the last set, not as dramatic of a of a comeback, but Rafa does get a lead. 
Schwartzman tries to come back, but Rafa ends up finishing him off. And each time, he finished him off the same way. He, knowing that Schwartzman likes to stay back and, and, and deep behind the baseline, Rafa starts hitting these big, looping returns. And it was bouncing so high that even with Schwartzman doing his little kind of jump hop to hit the balls to get leverage, was struggling to get on top of these balls. And so it was coming in at like his shoulders. And and he was not getting much on the return. And, and Rafa just kept pegging him deep, pegging him deep, and then finally set him up for not being able to cover the ground that he wanted to cr- cover and was able to, to, you know, to put him away. And he did this successfully three times in a row. And to watch this tactical battle play out, knowing he had that if he needed it, and when he needed it, he employed it perfectly and then put his opponent away. Um, reminds me of, of watching football matches where you have teams that know each other well, and yet one team has that extra gear. It reminds me of uh, when, when, when Pep was at Barcelona playing Real Madrid. Real Madrid knew what Barcelona was going to do. Even when Mourinho comes in, he knows what Pep wants to do and what Barcelona want to do. And, you know, Mourinho's card was, okay, we're just not going to play football anymore. We're gonna be, we're gonna be thugs. We're just gonna go and foul, tactical foul. We're gonna do whatever it takes to win. And Pep and Barcelona were prepared for that. They got used to that, and so that tactic, very much like Schwartzman being able to cover ground and, and being familiar with his opponent, giving him the ability to to read Nadal very well last night was very much what, what you would see. Barcelona started getting used to this, and then they knew how to adjust to it and were able to find ways to finish them off. And if you go back and look at Mourinho's time at Madrid at the, at, concurrently with, with, with Pep, it was a it was a struggle for Mourinho in Madrid, and 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 so you had this superior team, Barcelona, but you also had that extra, right? That tactical extra, and uh, and 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 so when you look at uh, clubs around the world, teams around the world the best teams have that extra gear. They have an extra place that they can go to and an extra place that, that they can find a tactical advantage. The great thing about a tennis match is you're seeing it in front of your eyes, shot by shot, and, and, and the games are moving so, you know, so fast. You know, balls just going back and forth over the net. But you can see the adjustments. And... Um, and in, in a football match, it's, it, sometimes it's a little difficult, right? You're watching a match and you're not really sure did, you know, what happened, what shifted, what changed, etc. But you'll see the best managers, they'll find something or they'll know they have something and they try to go to it. And uh, Pep continues to do that. Jurgen Klopp does that. 
a lot of the great managers have something that they can go to, some adjustment that they can make. Mourinho is is famous for for his halftime adjustments. He he could watch the first half, see some things, and then make some adjustments. Um, didn't quite work for him as as well in in Manchester as it did in other stops. But um, there's no taking away uh, what uh, the ability he has to to see a game and read a game and. And be able to try to, to, to convey that to his players um, to make adjustments. And so, you know, when, when I'm watching games and, and seeing what's going on, then you're, you're trying to figure out how do I get that out to my players? How does that get communicated? What, what, what is the messaging I'm using and what are the tactical plans that I have? How do I see out games? Um, how, how do I ensure that I'm in the right spot at the right time to make sure that I've got this covered. Here's, here's an example. So you're, you're closing out a match and you hear the coach say, everybody back. Now, what is he saying? What has he prepared his team for? Everybody back. Well, if, if he's not really gone over tactically a positional play scenario, where everybody back means something, what you'll normally find is that you'll you'll see players, usually, usually it'll start with, you know, the goalkeeper plus eight, and then it becomes goalkeeper plus nine, and then, and then you may end up with all 11 trying to get behind the ball or get back, get deep. And that is the depth of that tactical adjustment. Everybody get back. We're just going to get back. We're going to get deep. We're going to try to get bodies in front of the ball. And that that is that is a very elementary approach to creating defensive solidity. Everybody back. If that's all your instruction is just to get bodies back, there's still going to be opportunities to expose you. Why? Because you may have 11 players back, but they don't know exactly where to go. Think back to the, to the Rafa Nadal match I was just talking about. He knew where he wanted Schwartzman to go. He pegged him in the corner, high lofted balls, knew that Schwartzman would struggle to get them back over and, and back over with any power or, or accuracy and location on his return, therefore he could pin him in a corner and then wait to pounce when he felt like he had the court opened up and then he would smash it down on the opposite side. Now go back to the soccer example. When you watch a match, maybe you watch your your child's match this weekend and you hear a coach say, everybody back. What does that mean? Do the players know what that means other than the basic foundational level of Let's just run and get behind the ball. Let's just try to get bodies back. So that next level tactical understanding is what is that responsibility? And this is where American soccer struggles. This is where American American soccer struggles on on the professional level, at the very you know high level amateur adult soccer, but all the way down into into youth soccer as well. 
we talk about certain aspects of the game, like getting everyone back. And then once we've given that instruction in a match, we feel like we have coached them up. Like we gave them a tactical instruction. They should be able to execute. But other than running back and getting, you know, 11 people in their own 18 yard box or around their 18 yard box, you've not given any of them individual specific responsibilities. You've given none of them positional play tactical responsibilities or instructions. You just said, get your body back. But what do I do? Do I go out and approach the guy trying to cross the ball? Do I stay in? If I go, does my teammate closest to me, does he provide cover? Does he sit in a a gap or does he mark a, a man? Does he press a man to take away the nearest option? Those are all questions that have to be answered when you're making those adjustments, when you're trying to figure out how to set your team up. So when you're in a late game situation and you're saying everybody back, what does that mean? Next level, what does that mean? Do I get back and, and, and just run around like a chicken with my head cut off and the closest man just runs at the person with a ball? Do I get back and still play defense but just play it more compact, still in our lines, but we're going to be very, very, very tight together? Does everybody back mean that when everyone gets back, instead of playing without the ball as a 4-1-4-1, that now I'm going to come back and I'm going to put five in my my back line. My six is going to drop in and, and then I'm going to put five in front of them. Am I going to put four in front of them and leave one somewhere as an outlet? See, all of these are questions that we have to answer and not just, not just formationally like, okay, when I say everybody get back, you got you know, we're going to put five here and five here or five here and four here and one there. It's not just a formation, but it's next level beyond that. We have to keep peeling that onion. And what you saw last night with Rafa Nadal is he knew that he could keep, keep peeling that onion to get to the place where he had a supreme tactical leverage over his opponent. He knew Schwartzman was going to stay back. And so therefore he went into that game plan when he needed it in the first set, in the second set to finish off the match and caused Schwartzman problems and won the match in straight sets. This is the level of sophistication we're missing in American soccer. So when we say, look, we don't have the ball, what does that mean to our players? I was having a conversation yesterday uh, with someone about off the ball. And this goes right into what we're talking about, off the ball. Talking about off the ball, you're training your players with a ball. In training, I get it. You want them to get touches. Makes sense. However, when you're playing a match, 90% of the time, players don't have the ball. So what are we teaching them for that 90%? In our training sessions, are we setting them up for that 90% without the ball? 
That may be an off-the-ball run. It may be positioning. Maybe figuring out how to get the right spacing. It may be setting up in the right angles to support the ball. What are we doing without the ball? The entire team doesn't have the ball, so your opponent has the ball. What are your instructions? So that when you do say everyone back or pressure, what does that mean? Who's pressing? Who's covering? What are the shifts defensively without the ball? If you play in a 4-3-3, do you continue to defend in that same 4-3-3? Or once you've lost the ball, do you you retreat into a different formation without the ball? Do you you fall into a 4-1-4-1 or a 4-2-3-1? Do you fall into a 4-4-2? Are you teaching your players how to be successful from a tactical standpoint without the ball. If 90% of your training, I mean, excuse me, your matches are without the ball, then your training sessions are going to need to address in order to give your teams the ability to be successful. They're going to have to be able to address what they do without the ball. Now, that does not mean that you, you, you lock the balls in the car and 90% of your practice, no one needs a ball. That's not what I'm saying. Don't, I don't want anyone to confuse me. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is your instructions, when you're using the ball, whether that's with Ron, the way you use a Rondo, the way that you, you set up your training session, maybe it's, you know, you don't have one player, one ball. So now maybe you've got eight players, one ball, or 10 players, one ball, and you're running, say, a Rondo session. What is your instruction to those players in those Rondos when they don't have the ball. So if they're on the outside, are they are they supposed to shift in relation to the ball? If their team doesn't have the ball and they're hunting, right? They're pressing and they're trying to get the ball back. What are your instructions to them? Who's who's pressing? How how is their body position? How does that help them set up their opponent or excuse me, their teammate to create the pressure to win the ball back? Right, So all of these questions need to be answered. And so when you're going through these scenarios, this is the level of sophistication we have to get to in American soccer to really start to prepare players in a better way. So um, it was a fascinating match last night. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, you know, yes, it, it helped that, that Rafa is my, my favorite tennis player. But all that being said, it was great theater, but it was also... Really fascinating to watch the mental approach last night. Two players, very familiar with themselves, knew each other well, knew their games well, and and yet Rafa still having a tactical place that he felt he had a really good advantage, and it showed last night. So, good stuff. Enjoyed it. Look forward to the weekend uh, with the U.S. Open and... uh, Hopefully uh, seeing Rafa win the U.S. Open Cup in his 19th major. And I'm still holding out hope that he ends up tying and then eventually beating Roger Federer's record of 20. Um, I don't hate Roger Federer. I just really like Rafa Nadal. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Federer's out. Djokovic is out. So... 
got a good shot. So we'll see what happens. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand. D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use the promo code DW Show to get 10% off of your order. If you don't know who they are, go check them out at D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. They have very, very cool resources. If you're a soccer coach, player, goalkeeper, etc., it's worth checking them out at D-U-K-T-I-G-Brand.com and use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order. We'll be right back after this with John Townsend. show this thursday september the 5th this year 2019 is just flying by can't believe it's already september and uh we've been up and running the show since april and uh early on we had uh, john townsend joining us and uh today he is back for another round john welcome into the show thanks uh thanks for uh, tuning in and, and joining us today oh thanks for having me daniel so, uh, first bit of news, you live up in the St. Louis area, uh, recent announcements that the cabal, uh, IE MLS and us soccer have decided together. And I, and I put them in that, in that context because Dan Flynn, the outgoing CEO of us soccer acted as a quote unquote independent, um, advisor slash, representative for the MLS St. Louis bid um, with MLS. Um, no conflict of interest there, people. Um, and, and, M- and MLS awarded St. Louis uh, a, a franchise that's going to open, I believe, in 2021, 22, somewhere in there, uh, if I'm right. Um what is what is the the temperature on the ground there? Uh, I know you've got St. Louis FC, USL. Um, you know, talking to, to people around uh, the area. What are their thoughts uh, right now? I think you would get a a dichotomy of answers. The first uh, group of people, probably the loyal local St. Louis soccer fans, who are 
tuned into the game at a grassroots youth and even semi-pro uh, USL level, uh, pro level, um, are really happy with the fact that they feel their support is being acknowledged by the big dog on top. However, they are quickly realizing that all that they love and that is really theirs, the intimate culture, the uh, affordable prices of of attendance, the accessibility to the front office of the players, their ability to chant what they want, that's all going away. And they are quickly realizing with this announcement, all that they knew and all that they hope is now being uh, sequestered and almost taken over um, very quickly in a very corporate way. Um, And I think a lot of them are going to miss the days that they've had with something that isn't MLS. Now, the other side of that coin is St. Louis is always been argued as it should have been an original MLS city. Uh, it's had multiple bids go through a couple of rounds of votes and then fail. And now it's finally happening. So there's a, an optimism, but you, what you'll find is people who want MLS the most probably don't go to the games. Now they probably don't understand the intricacies and complexities that MLS can present and what it will do for the identity of the city. I think it's very shiny, very new, but that newness will wear off. I've told people that this being a Midwestern city, you are not going to get the stars and the glitz and glamour that the coasts get um, in year two and three and five and six. What's going to happen when the team isn't doing well? We've seen, St. Louis is a very, very fervent sports town. When the teams are doing well, people are supportive, like most good towns. But when it is not good, people are ruthless. And I am interested to see what the product on the field will be um, come those years where it is not the new shiny product anymore. Um, I've seen it happen in other cities. Um, My hometown, Chicago, we don't need to go really into that. But we've seen what happens when a franchise is mismanaged and I can think of no greater example than what we see we're seeing in Cincinnati, what we're seeing in Columbus, what we're seeing all over the league in terms of the the way a team and franchise is presented and propped up and then how it really is when you get to the supporter culture. Um, it's a mess. And I I'm hopeful that the people will enjoy what they get, but I also think they're gonna deserve what they get. And you can take that how how you will. So when you are um having these conversations are St. Louis FC fans hoping that their USL team becomes kind of folded into MLS? Are they hoping that it stays as a separate entity competing in the USL? I think initially they wanted to be folded in. They wanted that connection that, that, uh, that conduit between both teams. Um, I think a lot of the St. Louis FC upper management had a part to play a big part to playing in MLS especially in the first bit that didn't go through a couple of years ago. I think the purists, the supporters that go to every game, rain or shine, snow or sleet are now looking at things like, I think we were warned about this. Now we see how this could be problematic if we're not careful. And I think what, what you are finding is they're going to want that separation. I think at the purest level of, okay, this is our own thing that we were there when this team was playing at a college stadium in the snow. Um, we've kind of grown up with this 
USL um, outlet. And now we don't know if we want to give it up. I think that there is a, a big rift between the casual supporter who brings his kids and her kids to the, the games and wants a hot dog and a soda and leaves at minute 70 versus the what I would call the more ardent supporters who are there pregame, postgame, tuning into the local radio station. I think that they actually would rather keep it separate. Um, maybe there's some connection that they would like the players to be going um, back and forth from, but I think they the management aspect, they like it to be separate. But we both know that once MLS has its hooks in, it will rule and take most, if not all, decisions with anything affiliated with it, whether it's youth club, youth coaching, uh, the community aspect, if you want to call it that. I don't believe that this is going to be a smooth um, transition from USL to MLS. I think there's going to be a lot of um, plays that are going to challenge the, the things that people have been warned about and said, and I I've been contacted by many people I consider friends who say, man, you, you told us, you warned us about this. I said, I, I did, but it was never going to stop it from happening. I just wanted to educate um, you on what could happen and what you've seen in other cities. So congratulations, you got what you wanted, but be careful what you wish for is my message. I'm hoping for the best, but I, I know better than to really put my full faith in, in what's coming. So is the plan on an official level for St. Louis FC to move into MLS or or are they going to stay as two different teams in the city of St. Louis? As far as I've been told and I've read, it's going to be two different teams as of now. I think that there is no team name for the new franchise yet. There's been a lot of talk about what that should be. Should it be a transition from something St. Louis FC centric? going into the MLS level. Um, obviously where St. Louis FC plays is outside of where, um, we would consider St. Louis city proper. Um, it's not that far, but for some people it is too far for the casual fan. They're not going to drive down 15, 20 minutes, um, outside the city limits to, to watch this game, which is one of the issues of MLS, um, failing here before in terms of the, the bids. So I think that the plan would be to take the, the fan culture, what St. Louis FC has built, the popularity, the, the supporter culture, the some of the, the things that it's known for. And obviously, MLS will siphon that off and, and do its best to, to maximize its opportunity to take that. But when it comes down to the, um, the day-to-day stuff, uh, I, I don't know that the plan is to take St. Louis FC and promote it if you will i use that term very uh loosely to the mls level it won't be a i don't think it'll be a drag and drop um type move i think it will be a completely new thing that comes in um it will be like we've seen in other cities and i don't know what that'll do to the relationship between people who are very very supportive of what's going on now and what's coming in 2022 i believe um there's a lot to be seen there's a lot to be uh unfolded i think the announcement getting the bid and all that stuff was what everyone is wrapped up in now the details and the terms and conditions are going to be what people need to come through the media here uh i would say is blissfully ignorant they're 
marketing St. Louis as a soccer city, which it is. I think there's a lot of excitement because there will be games that will be played friendlies um, that won't be in a baseball stadium, which is a good thing. But I also think that they've been blissfully ignorant, not knowing what we, as uh, I would say, purists know about the ins and outs of governance and um, oversight. And so I think what they're going to find is the more they dig into it, the harder this is going to be to kind of unwrap and, and, and frame a, percep- a perception around that's uh, anything different than confusing when we get into it. So we'll see. Speaking of uh, MLS governance and uh, what, what is coming down the road in the, in the next few years for the city of St. Louis, Jeff Carlisle reported yesterday that a handful of fans belong, belonging to the Timbers Army, which is uh, the main supporters group for the Portland Timbers in MLS, have been banned from attending games at Providence Park for three matches. Uh, multiple sources have confirmed to ESPN the fans were banned for waving flags that show the Iron Front symbol, which violates MLS's prohibition on political signage in its stadiums. And MLS um, has stated that the symbol is connected to the to the Antifa movement and thus constitutes a link to a political organization. The Timbers Army contends that the image is intended to promote inclusion, anti-fascism, and anti-racism. Um, one source added that the fans who have been sanctioned can appeal their bans if they so choose and that punishments could be reduced. Um, so when you're looking at... Um, you know, Major League Soccer and the culture. And I talked a little bit about this yesterday when I was explaining the idea of a worldview. When you look at MLS, their worldview is power and control uh, and exclusion. And in those three elements are what guides their decisions more so than anything else. So, I don't think political speech bothers Major League Soccer not because of what side of the political argument they come down on. It's more about the fact that they feel like this Timbers Army, one of the most passionate fan bases in American soccer, if they continue to speak up and the passion level rises, what's next? What is what are the messages that start to come up next? This true passion level starts to rise and get to a point where we can't control it. We can't manage it. And now our power and control is threatened. So we squash this now using whatever excuse we want to use in order to keep control. That's my view on the MLS worldview. And, 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 and likewise, my, my supposition is that U.S. soccer's worldview when it comes to professional soccer in America is that MLS must succeed no matter what, that they operate on that idea, that principle, and that guides their decisions. So when you see those two things working hand in hand from the Federation and from major league soccer, and then you've, you've warned some of, you know, your, your fellow St. Louis soccer fans about what will likely come at some point, down the road uh, with major league soccer coming to town. Um, has anyone that, that you've had these conversations with taken notice 
to what is going on throughout the league and, and most recently uh, with the Timbers Army in terms of political speech or freedom of speech or that, you know, the passion level of the supporters. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of key phrases there. Control is one and the, the league will not give up or relinquish control over messaging, media content, delivery, narrative uh, presentation. And we've seen this with the promos, like they don't allow fireworks yet. Their promos have fans with flares and fire pyrotechnics in the stands, a stage type of thing. They don't, allow what they would call um, hooligan culture, but they allow teams to have supporter groups with firm army hooligan, uh, you know, all these types of connotations. So it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. They want to control what people do, but they're willing to let a certain amount of, of content and, and presentation remain. This is, this is a, a, a weird thing because it contradicts itself quite often. It also shows footage from previous years and they, presented as current footage of, you know, well, look, the flag's not there and, and whatnot. And this, this happens quite often. I think what, you know, it's hand in hand, but it's also hand over hand with the way the Federation and the league try to control things. And what, what we find is um, we live in politically charged times and St. Louis is a, it's in a red state and the city itself, um, I would say has a, a lot of passionate people on both sides of the political spectrum. And we have never really seen what's going to happen in a, in a place where <clears throat> wearing a red hat for the Cardinal game and wearing a red hat for something else um, could be very, very easily, um, you know, you could see a lot of that happen. Um, and, 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 I, and I'm not trying to make this a political thing, but it is um, what, what I find to be coming is, We've already seen that St. Louis, um, the, the MLS bid has started looking for community outreach um, group committee. And you and I both know when U.S. soccer MLS comes in with committees, I use that in air quotes, it's less authentic than one might think. And people here have said, well, we already have community. We already have supporters group. We already have people in the community doing work. Why do we need to hire someone from the league and get that approved? That's the first signs of this and I use this term all the time in writing and in interviews, Orwellian culture kind of coming in. This group think this this ministry of truth type thing coming in to kind of control what's being said, what's being presented, what's being written. Um, and what is coming is there is going to be uh, subtle ways that will that will will reveal the extreme. And what we've seen in in the Pacific Northwest, we're going to see in the Midwest. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised you don't see it more, but maybe that's because the league controls content and we don't see everything, but you go to New York and you see um, fans going at each other in the streets, trying to represent this hooligan culture, even using what I would consider fake English accents, because that's the identity they want. That's what MLS props up is yes, you can have this very authentic can't fail league. That is going to trying to be a global power. We're going to use everything we can to import, and plasticize this culture, but once it gets to a point we can't control it, we're going to try to reel it in. Well, what happens with these groups, especially Timbers Army, and it's in the name, these are fervent fans. These are fans that have been there before MLS came, and they know what the world game is about. You can't hide the world game. It's on everyone's smartphone. It's it's available for, for next to nothing. That authentic aspect, most people are world travelers now, whether they physically get to other stadiums or they go there digitally. 
um, we know what the world has to offer in terms of authentic open system football. So when MLS comes in to control the narrative, yeah, it'll control it for the casual fan, but the, the one who wants to speak out, the one that ties his or her identity to the team or the franchise, it might be a, uh, it might be too far gone for them. And they might double down on their, on their support, whether it's politically correct or incorrect, they're not going to stop their message. And I think MLS punishing fans, like they did this with sector Latino in, in Chicago, a whole section was banned from the stadium. Um, you, you see this across the league where the league comes in and poses its will. And then the fans, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be harsh here, but they keep going back. It's like this repeat customer. It's like, well, you get what you pay for. And if you keep supporting something that bans you, that will change the narrative, will have this amorphous rule book, you're going to continue to get the goalpost moved on you as a fan or as a supporter group or as somebody who is trying to figure out, is this a safe place for me to take my children? I have two young sons. I don't know if I want to take them to an MLS game in certain cities. Certain cities are probably fine, but at the same time, like I don't need to see that at a game. But I also don't need to see the league come in and selectively choose what groups it's going to sanction and punish. And I think MLS is is aware of this. Um, I think it's too far gone for them to really control what's happening. But um, it's going to get worse before it gets better, especially going into the next couple of years as the development of a stadium comes in and as the, the the supporters group begins to take formation that MLS is propping up in St. Louis. I don't know that it's going to be what people recognize here. Um, again, I, and I mentioned that this is a red state. Whether you want to believe it or not, St. Louis may not be red, but this could be something that we see manifest in, in odd ways here. Soccer has a way of accommodating and finding people that are on the fringes of you know groups. And I think that MLS has allowed this. It's enabled this in many ways. And when it could be more authentic, it has tried to import and selectively choose what's authentic. And as a result, it gets out of control. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I'm, I'm listening to you talk and, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking through this, you know, uh, example of, um, you know, you have someone who is a bona fide soldier, you know, in the military, uh, Air Force, Army, Marines, Navy, what whatever branch you want to think of, but they are a bona fide soldier. And then you have the way MLS approaches it, rather than actually like bringing in the real bona fide soldiers, they have actors, you know, playing dress up, getting ready for their parts, you know? And so like you have the passion level of a real soldier who's committed. They're literally committed to lay down their life for their country. And then you have an actor, you know, in his trailer getting ready to, to go out and he's got his fake blood and his, you know, his, uh, makeup on and look like he's been sweating and, and, you know, in, in a, a ditch for three days, uh, going to shoot a, a battle scene, um and you know is when when the camera's rolling it looks like man that guy is enduring all kinds of pain and then they go cut and the guy gets up and he's drinking a soda and just sitting in a chair chilling um that that to me is is the the way i look at mls um you, you know you have supporters group like the timbers army um, and you mentioned even in the name army yet MLS doesn't want 
they don't want the authentic, you know, feeling of, of what it really means to, to be fully invested. They want just enough so that when you're watching the film in that moment, oh man, that, that looks just like what I see in Europe. And, and, and until it actually starts to, to, to get beyond <clears throat> a level where they feel like they can control it. And then it's like, okay, uh, cut. Uh, you guys take a break. That was a little, that was a little heavy. We need to lighten it up a little bit. Let's, let's redo that. Um, and so you have the league kind of stepping in as the, as a director in a movie calling cut or timeout or, you know, uh, hit the pause button, whatever the case may be, whenever they, you know, see that, that an environment is getting to a place where, where they can't control it. Um, and, and you're right. The funny, the funny response to me in all of that, and, and looking at what's been going on around the league uh, this season, it seems to me that some of the fans, like in the Timbers Army themselves, but in other stadiums as well, other markets, other cities, are starting to, you know, take a look at MLS behind MLS. Like, what really is MLS? Like, you know we we're ready to get out of the kiddie pool. Like we want to go in the deep end and you know, so what's going on? Why can't we go and sign, you know, Neymar, you know, Barca wants to get Neymar. Why can't I at sporting KC put in an offer for Neymar? Why can't we get a player like that? They start to ask these questions. Um, and, and, and then the more you start asking those questions and then you start to find out the answers as to why these things are not possible. You know, and and you start to see that, and then you, to your point, which is to me the 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 I don't know if, if funny is the right word to use, but we've I've seen this even with U.S. soccer. If you want to complain, you have every right to complain. You have every right to go to the stadium and complain, but know that these people are are about control in order to leverage opportunity to earn revenue. And if you show up and pay a ticket to get in, you gave them what they wanted. They really don't care what you say because you just gave them your money. That's what they wanted in the first place. Whether you come to the match or stay at the match really doesn't bother them because they got in this for the money. Um, and so when you when you see an injustice or you see things like what's happening with Timbers Army or what happened in Chicago and other places, and yet you keep paying the money, you keep giving them money to go to their matches, even if you want to protest them, your ultimate protest is is to not show up. And you know, I, I think we saw a, a an, an extent of that, not full out boycott, but an extent of that a few months ago when um, the U.S. men's national team played in Phoenix, and they typically get, you know, decent crowds there. And they had, like, less than 7,000 people in the University of Phoenix Stadium where the uh, the Arizona Cardinals NFL team plays. There was no one in that stadium. I mean, you could throw a baseball to try to hit the next, you know, fan. And, and that was something that, that the announcers couldn't avoid. They had to talk about it. 
you know, there's no one here. Um, and I think even with an MLS controlled media presence and, and how much influence pressure that they, they put on even their broadcast partners in ESPN and Fox, I think that the announcers would have a very hard time not talking about the fact that the stadiums are empty. Um, if, if, if these fans really, really wanted to make a statement, it would be to stay home. Um, you know, if I was a member of the Timbers Army, my word to my fellow supporters in the Timbers Army was, well, if they suspend a few of us for three games, they've suspended all of us. So let's all stay home. Um, yeah, this that, is, well, that would like, make a bigger picture to me, a bigger, bigger argument to me. No, you're right. And, and you know, the I think what we have joked about is this is kind of like a cosplay. This is I dress up, I play my part. And this is what the league likes. But if you look at Europe, the most dangerous thing that ever happened in Europe, or one of the most dangerous things with the hooligan culture is they stopped looking like supporters. They look like you and me. That's when it got dangerous is when you saw firms show up in hoodies and look like normal people. And then they did their thing and then they reassimilated back into the crowd or into society. No one could find them. Um, I have friends that family that live in the UK. This is exactly what happens. So what you're going to find is you're going to have a shift is the cosplay, the, the, the costume party is going to be over and you're going to see these people infiltrate um, negatively and they're going to attract people who want to combat them negatively because this is their thing. This is their, this is their stadium. This is their army. This is their game. This is their team. And they're going to look like you and me. They're going to be dressed up like they're going to the zoo. And all of a sudden they're going to see something break out and then, What's the league going to do then? No hoodies, no baseball caps. Like it's, it, this is a, a bridge too far for the league and it's going to get out of control. It already has. And what you mentioned about the stadium and attendances and, and there's eyes on everything. People have smartphones. There is citizen journalism happening that is telling the story within the story, the real story in many, in many regards. And I think what, what we're finding with major league soccer and the federation especially is the dollar drives the decision. If you want change, fundamental change, you cannot give your dollar to something that is going to just take it and run with it. Like every time you tune in and you give your time, attention, and money, you trade that for what you think you want, the league is one. They are not interested. They're a business. And their main goal, people forget this, is to protect the investors, not care what you think. And I've never seen a supporter culture in the U.S. is what we have where we care what millionaires thinking what their well-being is. They don't care about you. They never will. They're not going to pay your bill. They're not going to send your kid through college. And yet we have people fighting for this power structure that is so top-heavy that it really does separate the 1% from everybody else. And, And what they want, if you look at the political aspect of this, is they want the people at the bottom to fight. They want that rift because it keeps the attention off of what's actually happening. This is behind the curtain in Oz, you have the man. And what we're, people are starting to find in, in, in some of these places, as you well alluded to, is this is the real story. This is what's going on behind the machine. And we don't like what we see. Now, there's a whole subset of people that don't know this, and it, it'll come when it comes to their city. But what you're going to see is all the fights we see, all the, the rift and the, the, the um, controversy, it's going to take a different form in about five years. People are going to stop wearing the jerseys, but they're going to still come to the game. They're still going to 
pump their narrative and their political view. And this is what happens when you try to import something authentic and you now you want to control it. It's not controllable. And so we'll see what happens, but I am, I am not optimistic that it's going to get better in major league soccer. And, um, and even to that point, it could go down the league structure. Um, you know, we don't really have a, a you know, a piece of pyramid, but you're going to see it other places. And this is the, this is the danger of trying to control the direction of narrative. Well, you know, when I look at uh, sports in America, uh, how do you get change in an organization? If, if when you're looking at, you know, uh, what goes on, uh, say at a college, if the fans are in, you know, in an in an uproar, that you know, they're just the team struggling, coach isn't doing well, you know, the fans are like blowing up the switchboards they're calling into the school they're you know donors are saying we're going to pull our money if if you don't you know make a change uh, at the at the coaching position the fans quit showing up to games uh the team's not playing well um you know th- th- they exert force pressure on on a school and whether that's at a high school or or a college university and you see that as well, you know, even with 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 some of the the pro teams uh, in, in some of the sports where you know you'll see the fans get upset, they'll quit coming to games, um, and attendance will drop or whatever, and and the owners realize, man, I got to do something or um, it's going to affect me, it's going to affect my bottom line. What what never plays out in those scenarios is that the fans keep coming. Um, in all of those scenarios, the fans, their biggest voice is not showing up, meaning they're not buying tickets. They're not financially supporting the organization. So the organization starts to fill, whether it's a school, university, you know, high school, or even a pro team, they start to feel it in the bank account. They hear the noise, but they're also reading the ticker tape. And, and they're looking at the bank account and the balance and they're realizing, hey, ticket sales are down. Um, let's try a new marketing gimmick. Oh, that's not working. Oh, they, they keep calling us t- saying that, that we got to make a change. Okay, this isn't working. You're gone. Um, Major League Soccer fans, for whatever reason, in, in the 20 plus years the league's been around, have yet to fully figure out where their real power lies. And, and you nailed it when you, when you said that the, the owners in the league, they, their main priority is themselves, the owner-operators. They're the investors. So as long as you keep giving them money to come in and watch their matches, that's what they care about the most. Not your supporters' culture, whether you are even enjoying the game or not, they really don't care. I mean, if you came in and treated it like a library book, they'd be like, man, I wish it was a little bit louder, but they got their money. If you don't show up, like if you're the Timbers Army and you don't show up and Merritt Paulson has to deal with that, that an entire section, arguably the loudest, most passionate supporter section in major league soccer says if you if you're going to ban one of us for three games for that you're banning all of us and none of us are coming 
that is going to have a bigger impact and give you more leverage in the long run than paying money, showing up and going, hey, I want to hold up a sign that says, you know, that I disagree with your decision or MLS, you're unfair. Like, if you really want to tell them they're unfair, you tell them by not giving them your money. Um, and that, that is the, the, the key differentiator that I don't think MLS supporters and the fan culture have figured out yet. That if they want real changes within Major League Soccer, their power is going to lie in the fact that the stadiums are going to have to empty out for them to have a real say in, in decisions. As long as they keep paying those owner-operators money to show up, the owner-operators are going to placate them to an extent just enough to keep them coming to games, but they're not going to do or feel any real pressure to do anything differently than what they are doing. So John, what I warn people here about real quick is when, when people are upset at investors and the operators, guess where the investors go. They go to the group of other investors to, to vote, to hear that panel out. They don't go to the fans and say, okay, I hear you in Europe. When the Glazers or, Gillette and Hicks own Liverpool. What did the fans do? They walked out of the stadium, into the street, into the community at that level and said, we are not doing this one more minute until this changes. Guess what? Ownership changed. Policy changed. Contracts changed. Structure changed. You even saw it with Chicago Cubs. When for 100 plus years, awful ownership, awful investment, got a new guy in and said, I'm going to change the narrative. People stopped re-upping season tickets that they used to will to their family members. They stopped doing it. And finally, they actually got fundamental change. So I think there's elements that they should, MLS fans should try to copy and look at and analyze. But you're right. You have to vote with your dollar. And if you keep going, you're going to get the same thing you've always received. No doubt. No doubt. And, um, and, I, and I think that's the lesson from today, you know, is if you want real change within Major League Soccer and, um, you know, St. Louis fans, you've got a franchise coming uh, over the next couple of years. Um, same thing. The dollar is what matters most to Major League Soccer as well as to, the, to those in charge of the Federation. And it's important to keep in mind their worldviews, right? So Major League Soccer, they want control, they want power, and they want exclusion. That is their worldview. That's how they feel like they create a, a successful business model um, and, and have longevity. And when you couple that with a federation whose worldview when it comes to professional soccer in America is that MLS must succeed no matter what, then you have a dangerous combination. And the only way that the fans and the public can really start to affect that is by the pocketbook by the, by the checkbook, by not giving MLS your money and, and U S soccer for that matter. Um, if their matches either, um, that's the only way you're going to get their attention because that's what matters most to them in the end is that control so that they can leverage the game to profit off of the game. So John, thanks for joining us today. Um, uh, and, and really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, how can people, uh, get in touch with you, follow your work, uh, online? Uh, the easiest way is on Twitter at, uh, John underscore Townsend three. That's where I'm most active. I also have a, a coaching company that I'm revamping. Um, uh, as you know, total football concepts. So check it out. TVT. 
Well, John, thanks uh, for joining us on the show. We really do appreciate it and uh, look forward to, to having you back on again soon. Talk about some other projects that you have going on. Um, if you want to, if you want to learn more about um, John, like I said, check him out at John underscore Townsend free on Twitter. And from there you can find his other projects that he has going on. Thanks for tuning in today, Thursday, September the 5th. As always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at DanielWorkman.com with our new show time at 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.